And now, more tips with your host, Rebecca, on lifestyle improvement. Remember that in our program, we present our opinion and the opinion of our guest, and is not to be interpreted as medical advice. Thank you for joining us here on Lifestyle Improvement for part two of our interview with Michael John Carley. Mr. Carley was the founder and first executive director of GRASP, the largest organization comprised of adults on the autism spectrum, and the executive director of ASTEP, the Asperger's Syndrome Training and Employment Partnership. Mr. Carley was featured in the documentaries On the Spectrum and Off the Rails. He has been in a wide array of media outlets from the Washington Post to ABC News and was one of the two people on the spectrum to address Congress in their first ever hearing on autism. Another, you know, another thing which is, I would say, probably the most complicated thing in the autism world to have to study, which is executive functioning. Mm -hmm. And executive functioning is very misleading because it has to do with a few things, has to do with emotional regulation. Um, when we get overwhelmed, how do we process it? You know, do we kind of go a little bit of, you know, batty, you know, or are we able to, you know, just take those deep breaths and, you know, get back to square one. Uh, but it also has to do with, Let's put it this way. It's mistaken sometimes to mean how intelligent you are. Mm. What it is, is times how your brain conveys its natural intelligence and how it sort of, so, so it's almost like your executive functioning is this link between what your natural intelligence is and what you show to the rest of the world. And this can have to do with things like organization. Mm -hmm. What are your organizational skills like? And we can go, the thing about executive functioning, which is interesting about the spectrum, is we can go in both directions. We can be excellent at executive functioning mm -hmm. or certain aspects of it. And we can be so lousy, it's just not even funny, um, at executive functioning issues. Multitasking is an executive function capacity as well. And this will play a large role in whether or not you succeed in a lot of these jobs. And the last one of which is uh, just sensory issues. A lot of individuals on the spectrum, it's about not a lot of them, I haven't come across one spectrum individual who doesn't have at least one thing that's a little funky <laughs> going on with one of their five senses. Mm -hmm. And in the, in the workplace, you could be dealing with sounds that might make somebody with autism go like this, or, you know, sometimes fluorescent lights give it certain individuals headaches. And every once in a while, you're going to have that rare, rare individual in the spectrum who, when he smells a certain brand of floor cleaner, has to go to the ER. And all of these will play a role into that, you know, office environment. Absolutely. And those are those type of things that because, like you said, it's just your sensory system reacting, simply you get to cope with it. And if you don't, then it just looks behaviorally inappropriate. Exactly. Which you, exactly. And you mentioned that earlier, and because I know that you mentioned a term, and I was going to bring that up later, but it might as well bring it up now. You talked about people on the spectrum kind of feeling like behavioral minority. Is that what yeah. you meant with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we sometimes, we look at these words, Rebecca, sometimes of majority and minority, And we automatically associate them as sociological terms, but really they still are math terms at root. And whether or not you're part of any majority, whether it's racial, gender, sexual orientation, economic background, culture, neurological makeup, which is what we're talking about here today, when you're in any one of those majorities, you will automatically assume 
because this is just how majorities work, that your way of doing things is the right way. And when you are part of any kind of a minority, any kind of a marginalized population whatsoever, you are always going to doubt the value of your way of doing things. You're going to be prone to that self-doubt. You're not going to have the same confidence that people in the majority will always have. Unfortunately, logic doesn't play into this because that minority's way of doing things might be brilliant. And yet their status as a minority will prevent them from being able to feel that, acknowledge that, and enjoy the confidence that that is the absolute truth, that their way of doing things is genius. Whereas the majority could have the dumbest way of doing things, and they often do, okay? And they will never, ever see this because they're the majority and because how can it be wrong when so many of us, you know, do it this way? So in essence, when you have these behavioral differences and you're part of this behavioral minority, um, of course, people are going to assume that your way of doing things isn't the right way. And I would even add that in the autism spectrum, because the behaviors are unknown, they're not just different, they're unknown sometimes, then you veer off into another area of dangerous human territory. And that is that the one thing that binds us all as human beings is that we all fear the unknown. And we are always going to assume when we are confronted with an unknown that that thing exists in the negative for us. You bring country kids into the city and they want to know why all these weird people aren't locked up. You bring city kids into the country and they want to kill everything that moves. I mean, it's really funny sometimes. So, Well, you know, I think it is so important to bring those things out. I've seen all the reviews that you've already gotten in your book because you write this down, you break it down for people to become aware of it. And then you give language to those that are not able to say what it is that they're feeling in this particular social environments that are so challenging, like job settings. You, you are giving words to that. One other thing that you broke down in your book, which I thought was, was pretty genius, was that people on the spectrum are not just dealing with those issues that we just talked about, those no, nonverbal challenges, those sensory processing uh, regulatory issues, but then they're also dealing with limited community support. For example, in my area, just a few years ago when there was the economical crisis, transportation for people that has disabilities and that they need it was decreased and limited. So not only do you have to deal with those issues we talked about, but then the limited supports that are interfering with your ability to become independent, to have self-esteem, appear capable, you're dependent on the the area where you live and the accessibility to the support system, correct? Absolutely. And you actually hit it right on the head with, let's say, just public transportation. Um, you know, you can so easily look to uh, various regions of this country and look at the populations of, of people, on, or you know, not just on the spectrum, but anybody with disabilities who requires public transportation. And in areas in which there will be low uh, public transportation availability, um, gee, you're going to see the rates of depression spiked up and you're going to wonder, why is that? Gee, gee, what, what a mystery here. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, I've actually experienced that sort of culture war, you know, myself, because just recently, you know, I lived in New York City for 28 years. And before that, I grew up in a pretty big city, too, in the Northeast. And, you know, uh, but we recently moved to the Midwest less than two years ago. And it's hard. It's hard because 
they are not behaviorally permissive around here. You know, there's this stand-up Midwestern guy and stand-up Midwestern gal iconography. And, you know, it's like nobody communicates. Nobody uses their words around here. You know, it drives me completely nuts. But it's certainly been an education as to how, you know, those regional differences really play a massive, massive role. Because, you know, it's funny, actually. A long time ago at Grass, Rebecca, we, we had some time on our hands. And we were like, let's take a look and see where the best place to live in this country is if you're on the spectrum. Where's the worst place? You know, and we had certain criteria for it. And we actually did find out that, you know, so it wasn't like I came here unprepared, that the Midwest was the worst because of that very reason. That, you know, if, if there's going to be, a, you know, again, those inappropriate behaviors are going to be through the roof. And of course, you want to avoid that place. You want to go somewhere where the weird guy can run a business and is allowed to. That's not the Midwest. Um, you know, even in the most wicky-wacky, backwoods, southeast pockets, you will have attitudes of live and let live when it comes to behavioral eccentricity. You really will, actually. Um, not here in the Midwest. So, you know, public tradition, all these factors, of course, go into what's going to measure up as a quality of life factor in an individual with any disability's life. Correct. So here you go. You have those factors, then you have community access factors. It just increases the challenge for a person on the spectrum to be successful at job setting. So now let's talk next about another issue that your book addressed, which is huge, in my opinion, and that is the educational community support. It is so true, and, and I quote what you say in your book, our educations have not met the changing labor needs. What I see at the middle school level, at the high school level, college and universities, there doesn't seem to be that awareness of not just helping people on the spectrum become prepared for the job setting, but then giving them options for training. Talk to me about that a little bit more. This is your host, Rebecca. And now we will take a short break, and we will be right back with more ideas on lifestyle improvement. As a caregiver, you spend your days caring for the needs of someone else. But what are you doing to help yourself? In our Caregiver Survival 101 workshops, we teach you the self-help skills that will empower you to be healthier and more productive. Do you feel tired, overwhelmed, have difficulty sleeping? Do you feel isolated? All these could be signs of caregiver stress. Chronic stress can impact your health adversely and ultimately cause irreversible, unwanted physical problems. Take a step towards your own personal care. A healthy caregiver is a better caregiver. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to do what is needed to stay healthy today. Go to www.caregiversurvival101.com. That again is www.caregiversurvival101.com and discover how we can help you help yourself. Caregiversurvival101.com or call 877-957-7387. That again is 877-957-7387. So now let's talk next about another issue that your book addressed, which is huge in my opinion, and that is the educational community support. It is so true, and, and I quote what you say in your book, 
our educations have not met the changing labor needs. What I see at the middle school level, at the high school level, college and universities, there doesn't seem to be that awareness of not just helping people on the spectrum become prepared for the job setting, but then giving them options for training. Talk to me about that a little bit more. Sure. Um, you know, without trying to picture the United States of America as getting, you know, the biggest lesson in how to dumb itself down in our entire history, which I'm tempted to do. You know, we're, we, we just have been making these extraordinary mistakes at every grade level, it seems. Uh, you know, when, you know, let's say just starting in high school, where if in the current economy, you know, if we could take a portion of those individuals on the autism spectrum in their junior, if not their senior year as well, um, of high school, and provide them with training to be things like plumbers or electricians or carpenters, uh, you know, or welders, which are actually in great demand right now throughout the country. A, we've, we've gone to this place where standardized testing under the guise of, well, we're all equal and everybody should have an equal chance. That's really nice and flowery, but it's not very realistic. There are not, not everybody is going to succeed or want to go to a four-year college. And in essence, if we have these kids that have technical abilities, but, you know, who aren't about to go study poli-sci at Stanford for four years, you know, why don't we give them that training in those last two years of high school? The heck with the regular curriculum. They will out-earn a huge portion of their neurotypical college-educated peers in 10 years, because those are jobs that everybody needs still. But instead... Instead, we send them off, and then we send them off to the colleges. Now, what's going on at the colleges? Have we adapted to the curriculums of the techno age that we are right now? Absolutely not. There's a reason why, with such a vast unemployment statistic still nailing us in the head, that we go off to places like China and India to look for you know, people to fill all these job positions. It's because we're not training those people, you know, to be the engineers that we need. And we need a lot more engineers than we used to. When I was a college student, we would, you know, sort of sadly joke that the philosophy majors and the poetry majors, um, that they were, you know, headed to a life of, you know, economic challenge. And now we can include political science and history and English majors into that same core and colleges just are not providing enough change in their curriculums to adapt to the modern workforce. And as a result, our college graduates are not prepared. And as a result, we have to go abroad to look for people to fill the positions that we have open. So absolutely. If there was one change that you could make, what would that be to help make that a better process? So what would you tell that special education teacher to do different to support her uh, student on the spectrum. Get away from any kind of standardized testing what, whatsoever. I would say that, you know, I mean, you, we, we, we live in this, you know, interesting era where people really think that they can have their cake and eat it too, Rebecca, where you have these oppositional forces like standardized testing, oh, we're all equal. And then, oh, no, we look at all our students as individuals. And, you know, we, we create individual plans. An IEP is, a, is an individual plan. That is just philosophically at root going to be at loggerheads with the educational system as it is. So something's really going to explode within any child's future that has an IEP because an IEP by definition goes against the current system. 
Wow, that's uh, there's a lot of things to think about on this <laughs> on this conversation. That's for sure. Uh, I've definitely, your book challenges people to think, um, and of course your conversation as well. But there is a lot of challenges for people to at least take into account what you're talking about. Put it within the context of what's going on right now and make their own decisions as far as how they can make a difference, because all of us can, right? Right. I think, Rebecca, too, you know, that, I mean, the one thing that I really wanted to do was that, you know, we're, we're, we're living in this era in which, and I just wrote a HuffPost column about this, where there are some wonderful initiatives happening in the autism employment area. But I think that we become a little bit too overexpectant of what those initiatives can really hope to achieve. Um, if you crunch the numbers, we may be looking at 3 million adults on the spectrum who need our help and who, who may be out of work. If that prevalence number of 1 in 48 is correct, if that uh, – well, actually, some people, some people either go by 1 in 45 or 1 in 68. Let's go with 1 in 68. If the prevalence number is 1 in 68, and if that 75 to 85% unemployment rate is true, and if it's – roughly 65% of our population is of working age, then yeah, that's 3 million people easy, okay, that need our help. And if one of those wonderful new autism initiatives is helping 12 people out per year, that's not going to cause much of a dent. And I think that we just have to start to expand our thinking. We need to get away from the whole notion of expecting the large businesses, the corporate culture, the Fortune 1000s to come to our rescue you know, in, in this employment crisis that we have right now, because every employment forecast tells you that it's not going to be big business that saves us. It's going to be small business. We need to start refocusing more on that. We need to start having more available options for things like, you know, nonprofits. Uh, and we need to especially, you know, start to teach people how to do startups better. Um, granted, some people just won't have the business head for it. We get that. But Maybe there are, you know, certain more aspects of training that can go into that. And I'm sure that there are plenty of people on the autism spectrum that can do self-employment. They just don't know how to yet. So the need to expand our thinking is huge. The need also to get out of the psychological rut of, hey, I just lost my job. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to settle for anything other than the position and the salary that I just lost. Sorry, dude, it's a different era. You can't do that to yourself. You have to lower down. Right. Um, you know, I think that, you know, just if we're coming to a bit of a close here, I, I would probably harken back to a woman uh, uh, who I spent time with and wrote about in the introduction to the book. And she was somebody who was, you know, she was young enough to be my daughter. It was at a conference. Um, it was one of those conferences where I really had to schmooze, even though I didn't want to schmooze and she and I kind of got left behind and she was just an assistant to somebody. So I didn't really think, you know, I, I was going to talk to her for that long. Uh, but she was, she was, uh, she was interesting and she was a first generation, uh, Filipino, uh, immigrant to this country. And we started talking about expectations when people do lose their jobs, because it was weird. We were actually, the conference was in Detroit. And we were in this like high rise hotel bar with these beautiful panoramic views of a city. And nobody else was noticing except she and I that it was a little awkward. You know, that city was suffering in a major, major way. And she and I were the only ones that really had that in our mindset. So we kind of bonded through that. 
And she had this great take by just saying, you know, in my country, the shame would not be the fact that you can't get that same salary, same status job back. The shame in my country would be if you were not working. So whether or not you wanted to interpret her message of make your own startup or whether or not you wanted to interpret her message as being greeting customers at a Walmart or just fixing the car and fixing other people around the neighborhood, their cars, you know, so that you were doing something rather than sitting on the couch, sending resumes out or watching, you know, binge watching, uh, you know, entire seasons of TV shows each day. We need to be uber flexible. We need to be uber open to all, all kinds of different solutions to solving what may be our individual unemployment employment crisis that, you know, may have to do with finding the next job, but it also may have to do with moving so that you reduce your expenses. There's all kinds of options to be able to look into, and we can't pigeonhole ourselves into one. So what can a caregiver tell their kids so they won't get discouraged? They need to tell their kids to keep moving. And because I think that, you know, when we try to restrict ourselves, this is going to be about the singer, not the song, Rebecca. It's not going to be about the design to get us out of our unemployment. It's going to be about our commitment to get out of the unemployment, whether that means reducing stress by more yoga, more meditation, more kickboxing. Who cares? You know, whether it means you have to move to reduce your expenses. Who cares? It's all of these things that are basically quality of life issues. And it's when we stop that the bad little bugs creep into our system and they start to make us depressed or sad or feel, you know, as though there's no hope. But if we keep moving and if we keep pounding the pavement, if we keep doing things, you know, that are emotionally healthy and get off the couch and away from the TV, that's the solution that's going to eventually end our unemployment crisis. With all due respect, I think that is a gem. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Tell people how they can get a hold of you, your website, and how they can buy your book, your wonderful book. Um, My book is available on Amazon at a dirt cheap price. Uh, They can get in touch with me through my website, which is www.michaeljohncarley.com. All my uh, my speaking engagements, as a matter of fact, um, I'm just about to pop up a three-hour presentation that I just put up about just autism in general. So, you know, look for that on YouTube. And you can sign up for my mailing list and for all my updates through the website. And you can get a hold of Mr. Carly or find out more about his work and his books or other services that he provides by going to www.michaeljohncarly.com. That again is www.michaeljohncarly.com. JohnCarly.com. And the book we have been featuring today at Lifestyle Improvement is Unemployed on the Autism Spectrum, How to Cope Productively with the Effects of Unemployment and Job Hunt with Confidence. You can buy this book at Amazon.com. Thank you so much again, Mr. Carly, for your time. And thank you for listening to Lifestyle Improvement. Remember that in our program, we present our opinion and the opinion of our guest, and it's not to be interpreted as medical advice. A 
as a caregiver, you spend your days caring for the needs of someone else. But what are you doing to help yourself? In our Caregiver Survival 101 workshop, we teach you the self-help skills that will empower you to be healthier and more productive. Do you feel tired, overwhelmed, have difficulty sleeping? Do you feel isolated? All this could be signs of caregiver stress. Chronic stress can impact your health adversely and ultimately cause irreversible and unwanted physical problems. Take a step towards your own personal care. A healthy caregiver is a better caregiver. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to do what is needed to stay healthy today. Go to www.caregiversurvival101.com. That again is www.caregiversurvival101.com. And discover how we can help you help yourself. Or call 877-957-7387, extension 101. That again is 877 57-7387-Extension 101. Caregiver Survival 101. Because care starts with you. What if there was a way to help your struggling child perform better academically? Would you pick up the phone and call? Lysol Improvement Occupational Therapy Services in Puyallup, Washington, supports wellness and optimal educational performance. Instead of just reteaching information, we endeavor to identify the possible root causes for your child's learning difficulties. We offer targeted testing to assist in the creation of an individualized plan and provide you with the brain training tools that can help improve academic performance. Visit our website at www.lifestyleimprovement.com or give us a call today at 877-957-7387, extension 101. That again is 877-957-7387, extension 101, for an initial free phone consultation. Lifestyle Improvement Occupational Therapy. We're ready to partner with parents and to help your child succeed. Lifestyle Improvement Radio is now online. Listen to our interviews at your convenience by going to www.lifestyleimprovementradio.com. If you like what you hear and would like to hear more about a specific subject, send us an email to producer at lifestyleimprovement.com and let us know what you think. Support our sponsors and let them know you heard about them at Lifestyle Improvement. Thank you for joining us here on Lifestyle Improvement for part two of our interview with Michael John Carley. Mr. Carley was the founder and first executive director of GRASP, the largest organization comprised of adults on the autism spectrum, and the executive director of ASTEP, the Asperger's Syndrome Training and Employment Partnership. Mr. Carley was featured in the documentaries On the Spectrum and Off the Rails. He has been in a wide array of media outlets from the Washington Post to ABC News and was one of the two people on the spectrum to address Congress in their first ever hearing on autism. Thank you for listening to our program today. And don't forget to join us again next Sunday morning at 730 for more tips on lifestyle improvement.